0: Everybody who's in work deserves a pay rise, regardless of what sector you're in and what you do. No one can tell me how this is not fundamentally unsafe. 60% of the people who go forward to become train drivers fail the aptitude test. It takes a certain mindset, it takes a certain ability. Then also the ability to understand that you're probably never going to be at home. We have an age problem we come out in the industry. Right. Uh, I believe the figure's well over 20% for the number of drivers in the passenger sector alone that can retire in the next five to seven years. So, if they take the opportunity to go, and we're not only short. On the people that were short already, but it's going to get worse, they agreed a process and how it would operate, and they went against it, did something different. And then, in less than 12 hours, they changed the goalpost yet again. And so, since since
1: then, has, has there been any further communication between anybody? Not at all. Let's talk about something a bit more controversial Please. And, and, and tricky. <laughs> um, Just giving me a break. <laughs> no, 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 there's no break on this podcast.
2: Welcome to a special extra episode of Green Signals, hosted by me, Nigel Harris, and Richard Bowker. Thanks for joining us. And as usual, if you like what we do, if you're with us on YouTube, please hit that like button and then the subscribe button, ideally. It'll help us further refine what we do here and tailor Green Signals much more to what you want it to be. Now, today is our latest big interview episode, and our guest is a man who polarizes opinions. He's characterised as hero and villain by different groups, and his name has been constantly in and out of the print and broadcast media this last couple of years, usually in the same sentence as rail disruption or misery to passengers. Either way, he's certainly a man of the moment, so we are really delighted to welcome Mick Whelan, General Secretary of Train Drivers Union, ASLEF.
1: Welcome, Mick. It's, it's fantastic to have you on Green Signals um, at what we know is a really busy time um, for you um one thing we thought be useful to do right at the beginning though if you don't mind um before we even talk about disputes or, or or anything like that is really give people a sense of what it actually takes to be a train driver i mean you must be really frustrated when you read stuff like all the driver does is push buttons. All he does is look out the window, generally have an easy time of it, and let's just automate the whole thing and be done with this. It's a little bit more complicated than that, isn't it?
0: It is, particularly on our Victorian infrastructure. While we might have met much modern technology, uh, it's a bolt-on railway. And it's incredibly complicated. We've got people who know all sorts of different signaling systems, all sorts of uh, rules and exceptions for the rule book, which is meant to be standard but isn't, which you'll know from your previous experience. But, you know, what's interesting for us is that over 60% of the people who go forward to become train drivers fail the aptitude test. It takes a certain mindset. It takes a certain ability. Um, and then also the ability to understand that you're probably never going to be at home. We hear much about the 35-hour, four-day-a-week train drivers, but that's based on an average. That average thing that's balanced by what you have to do. So most places, you're rostered up to 60 or more hours a week. Most days, you're out of the house for 12 hours or more. Um, the illogical part of it is we train train drivers like Pavlov's dogs. You tell somebody to get on something that weighs over 300 tonnes and drive at 140 miles an hour and press a little hand handle, have total faith in the infrastructure and the equipment that you're driving and stop at a space you can't see three or four miles away. It is a skill set that most people don't really understand. And if you go into most modern trains, um, it's like stepping into the cab of a spaceship. There are buttons and levers and all sorts of things everywhere that you have to be aware of, what you have to do. And the actual amount of focus that's required to be a train driver, the idea that you can sit there for five hours continually, fully focused, and then in the event of something going wrong, uh, proverbially pull the red underpants over your uh, trousers and lead loads of people to safety is what you're expected to what, do. And doing it an So one of the things I
1: always found amazing about it, Mick, was it was one thing sat in the cab, which I've done many, I've been lucky enough to do many times, uh, when it's glorious sunshine and you've got fantastic view, it's but I've also had the chance to do that at night in the lashing rain, um, and the driver's still expected to keep to the timetable. He's got to know, or she's got to know, every single, every signal, every sighting distance, every curve, every platform. I mean, it, it's, it's mind. How long does it take to train to be able to do that?
2: And more to the point, Richard, to have total confidence in the system and the colleagues you can't see to keep you safe at that point. Just to, how to validate something Mick just said, um, in Virgin Days, I went and did the aptitude test at Crew. That was the hardest thing I've ever done.
0: Well, that's right, and it's very, very difficult. And the, there's far more dropout through the filtering process. And we talk about the 60% that failed the aptitude test. Many people don't even get through the HR process, which in oh, one company I know is seven layers before you get the opportunity to even be considered to go do the aptitude test to go forward. But it is, as you say, a, a unique job. But also, it's the shifts. You know, people think, you know, you turn up at eight o'clock in the morning, you go home at four. No, you get to work for 3.20 in the morning and you do whatever, however long it takes and then you, you go home. And then, you know, your quality time isn't your own, quite rightly, because the responsibilities that go with the job around the alcohol and drugs process. So if you've got a bare day off, it's a bare day off, but there's certain other activities you can't undertake. So traditionally on the rail, as we all know, Sunday's a shift over, change over day. So on a Sunday, you'll go from days to afternoons, or afternoons to nights, or vice versa.
2: Sorry, in Richard, I interrupted there. You asked Mick how long it took to train.
0: Sorry, so basically, I knocked him it, off I, course. Sorry about that. Takes about no. a year. I mean, and the complexity of that, in then in our fractionalised industry, of course, is depending, you know, on the nature of the organisation yep. you're in, how many tractions, what routes, what roads, and where you've got to go. So. For some people, it's a bare 12 months. Some people can be longer, depending on the shape or nature of the geographical areas that you're going over and the number of attractions you have to so sign.
1: hopefully people have listened to that and gone, oh, actually,
0: it's a bit harder than I thought. So, so that,
1: that's, a, that's a great starting point. The other starting point we thought would be useful, um, just because people may not know, and now we're sort of talking about disputes and charges, the process to go through to decide to call a strike, is not it's not done on a whim, is it? So th- there are steps and there's a process. Would, would you be able to just sort of walk us through that process and, and, and what you have to do to get to that position, which you know, clearly no one really wants to have got to?
0: Well, quite simply, we do see going on strike as a failure. If we can't find a compromise or can't find our way, through a situation, then we fail because nobody actually wants to cost people money and nobody actually wants the brickbats and the problems that come with the with strike action, quite quite simply. So uh, in every company, you'll have what they call a collective bargaining machinery. It will recognise certain trade unions for certain purposes. And uh, if then you come to a situation where the company councils knows those companies can't find a form of agreement, we normally send in a full-time officer it normally meets the director level with or without the company council under avoidance of disputes. Normally that finds a, a resolution. In the event of that not happening, then um, that they will report to As Left Centrally. As left Executive Committee will then say, look, we'll give you X amount of time to resolve this or we will give you notice of strike action in the hope that that cooling off period will assist finding a resolution. And in most cases, traditionally it has. Um, And then, if not, then we make a further decision. Then we have to give uh, 14 days' notice of our intention to issue statutory notice. Then you have the statutory notice period. Then also, then on top of that, you have to have the balloting period. So it takes us a month or so to actually ballot all our members, which under the rather odd Tory laws, we can't have electronic voting in the 21st century. We have to do it by post, put the additional cost on the trade union, of course. We get that back. We look at the results. We collate it. We then give notice of our intention to strike. And then we give the, as I said, the obligatory 14-day statutory notice upon that. And that can take months and months. I've seen on occasions where it's taken a year to get to a dispute and if you, And just remind folks that aren't aware,
1: the percentage required to get a mandate to strike, it's the percentage of those who vote, not, necessarily, not the percentage of all those who could vote.
0: Yeah, we're, we're quite fortunate in our left that we get turnouts of 85 right. to 90%. And we get ninety percent plus uh, in our. But in the anti-trade union legislation, it's fifty percent of all those eligible to vote have to. So fifty percent uh, right, so of all those eligible to vote,
1: right,
2: entitled to
0: vote. Yeah, so you could get sixty percent in favour of strike action right, and not meet the it. threshold. If if you don't get the right numbers on okay. not voting, that's really okay. helpful. Now you
1: mentioned there. Um, consultation and machinery of negotiation machinery so one of the things that I think is a little bit odd about this and be fascinating your view on this so during privatization that machinery kind of moved to a local and top level yeah and Mm -hmm. That enabled different uh, arrangements to be met with different talks, which kind of made, I suppose, a bit of sense because they're all a bit different. A long distance talk is different to a commuter talk, and so on and so forth, right? Then we had COVID, and train operating companies effectively went bust because of um, a ridership just collapsed. And that machinery now seems to have been made central again with Mm. DFT stroke rdg running the process um i'm not quite sure how or why that happened i mean surely it's too complex to do that now i mean did you have
0: a where's where's your perspective on that okay uh, to give the background to it um the industry, as it always does a major perturbation or tragedy, comes together in a way that's amazing. And during, uh, you know, I want to pay tribute to everybody, including the employers and the government, that during the pandemic, we all came together through what we call the Raiden Street Coronavirus Forum and kept getting key workers to work, kept moving food and medicine around the country, and did our duty by the communities in which we live in. Um, so post that then, we knew there was going to be a massive drop-off with the changing nature of work in footfall. So we sat down with the employers and created what we called a framework agreement to see what we could do effectively to either get the footfall back or what could be done in the industry to save money. Now, at that time, the government was estimating they need to save 1.6 billion a year. The amount of money that the trade unions were meant to uh, collectively contribute to that was about 200 million. Uh, much of that was going to go through, then, voluntary redundancies and other processes which we saw happen in Network Rail and elsewhere. Those excluded from that, of course, were train drivers, signalers and guards at that moment in time. Um, while we're in that process, looking over what we can do to reboot the industry, of course, inflation started going through the roof. So we um, didn't seek a pay rise for the two years of the pandemic. RPI was less than 1%. There wasn't an interest in it. Um, And we hadn't been furloughed as they'd been in open access or elsewhere. Went to the then rail minister and said, look, inflation is now 5.2. It seems an awful long time ago for those heady days of 13 point whatever. And said, look, we need to do something. We're not going to see something from the past, but whatever. So we decided that through the framework agreement, we'd have these discussions because we were in those talks. Um, 2020 hindsight's a wonderful thing. Um, never knew it would turn into a political vehicle to batter the trade unions or the industry with. So we've done 14 pay deals in the last 12 months, as you know, Scotland, Wales, Freight, Open Access, Elizabeth Line, Eurostar, everywhere in which we, we operate. The only place we've got a problem is with the Westminster talks. Uh, so the Westminster talks then, and if I'm going on too long, please cut across me, signed up to new contracts, not franchises anymore, not what we traditionally know where they had to bid, where they had to say what they were going to do, say what they were going to deliver, where they took the revenue risk and the associated performance issues and problems and they paid penalties. They basically signed up to a contract where all we have to do is be there. Um, but the government had put into the contract that we can't give you a oh, pay rise. Sorry, so when, when you we say Westminster
1: pay. talks, you mean all those train companies that went on a management, so basically a management agreement post-COVID?
0: So first the first issue for us there was a, a good fact. we got all these collective bargaining arrangements you arranged as free collective bargaining. We bargain with the, the companies. So I ended up in a rather um, odd position whereby uh, we were going to the companies and they're saying, we can't give you a pay rise. We signed this contract with the government. We're not allowed. So I'd go to the government and say look we need a pay rise they say I can't talk to you you've got to talk to the operators so after being pushed from pillar to post for a period of time a degree of frustration sits in amongst the people i represent and we go through that process that i identified earlier where we we start balloting people now the ironic thing is i can't ballot the RDG, and I can't ballot the government, so I have to have 16 or 18 separate ballots, right, that are legally enforceable, that you have to jump through all the hoops, although I'm dealing with one central body and trying to to, to solve it. But also, that uh, that body isn't in the room. And that makes it far more hard. The dead hand of government, the DFT here, has made this process virtually untenable.
2: But can we just understand, me um, a bit about... Who was offered what and when? Um, It would be really interesting and useful to understand the chronology um, because there's been plenty of accusations flying around in the media that neither side is talking to the other. Um, I mean, you said recently any industrial action is incredibly damaging, but after 18 months out on strike and after a year with no one in the government or the train operating companies talking to us, we are forced to raise the profile of our issues. And the Rail Minister commented, strikes just hold the railway back, we believe, a fair and reasonable offer is there on the table for ASLEF, if they put it to their members. These are train drivers that are paid, on average, £60,000 for a 35-hour, four-day week. That pay deal would take them to 65000 We hope that they will take the opportunity to take it, then we can all talk about the positives of rail could you just walk us through to use richard's wonderful expression from a few minutes ago um the history of those various offers from the train operators and and where we're actually up to
0: certainly so under the auspices of this framework agreement quite naturally when we agreed it across the board with sister trade unions put into there was they would recognise our existing collective bargaining processes, which you both know, having been around the block with us a few times, is that our members' policy has always been that we can only put deals that we recommend to our members for consideration. So the operators that we've dealt with for the last 23 years know that, the government know that, the DFT knows that, but we still went into, under that framework, into talks in good faith. And I have to say, the first six months of the talks were like watching paint dry. Um, where everybody wanted everything, but didn't know what they wanted and couldn't cost it, because in our increasingly fractionalised railway, I've got several companies where I've got three sets of drivers on different salaries on different T's and C's. So trying to find a one size fits all solution became incredibly difficult. But we 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 kept on going. We we kept you know in good faith. We'd entered into it. We weren't going to walk away. Um, we got to about 14 months ago, um, about December of. Last of the year before last, because we're now in a yet another year, so I'll go back to twenty two.
2: 2022, and,
0: yeah. Yeah, and December of 22, um, I was on my fifth rail minister because we've had five prime <laughs> ministers in a short period of time. Um, met with the new, uh, new um, transport minister. Um, he'd already briefed the mail the next day, didn't like my tone, but I'd explained to him, I can explain to you what I believe the position was. But he did say he put the rail minister in to facilitate the talks, which I thought was a move forward. If we were going to get some ownership, some uh, real ability to, to resolve this, that's a good thing. Um, we agreed mutually across the uh, negotiating group, because it was that Christmas period where people were going away, they were doing things. Two-thirds of the uh, management side weren't going to be available. Two-thirds of my team weren't going to be available. And we agreed to meet sometime in the new year, two weeks into the new year. Um, I remember it. Forever. Um, the day before Christmas, New Year's Eve, I got a um, message from Mr. Montgomery saying, Can we talk? So I talk to Steve all the time outside of these talks because he is head of a big group and we do have other issues that happen on or about the railway from recognition to incidents and whatever else. Um, Steve said, Can we meet next week? I said, Well, your, your team's away, my team's away. But also, there's a week of railway strikes involving other sister unions and ourselves, so there's no availability. So uh, I said, also, the Rail Ministers might be coming in to facilitate the talks, so it'd be naive of both of us to enter into those talks before that happens. You see, yeah, not a problem. Within 20 minutes, I had a email from the Rail Ministers PA, can we meet next week? Can we meet next week? For the very same reasons I've just outlined, I won't bore you again. I said, no, it'd be difficult. So we set a date on the 6th of January. Okay. Uh, the next week goes ahead. On the Friday before that Monday, I got a text from Steve, can we talk? I'm still doing my normal day job. I do run a multi-million pound not-for-profit um, when we're not doing this. And I had a number of Zooms, number of meetings. And I still got the pad on my desk, seven names I've got to ring back after five o'clock in the afternoon. Um, at 15.48, my media person rang me up and said, uh, the Express, the Telegraph, the Sun and the Mail would like to know about the deal, Mick. What do you think? I won't say what I actually said to him that moment in time, It'd okay. be inappropriate. I think he did apologise to him for you don't shoot the messenger. Um, and we immediately put a message out to our members that we hadn't negotiated anything, we hadn't seen any deal, it hadn't been put to us, hadn't been to our board or whatever. Um, and it turns out that that deal then was that if we gave up everything we'd achieved in the last 147 years nationally, if we gave up every local agreement, every location, and if we gave up the right to negotiate on any future technology or other issues in the future, we could have a 15-20% to 20% pay cut.
1: Um, sorry could just ex- ex- just explain the 50 20 percent pay cut co- because what you're doing is you're saying right if i look at real real wage change if i look right, at RPI, okay so you're going yeah. back to the last time there was a pay award to the to now and yeah. saying right okay. so
0: that was the-, Get the chronology right um that was a friday met the rail minister on the monday um was very, incredibly candid but polite, saying, look, you must have known about this because we've been told throughout the whole piece that unless the DFT and the Treasury agree what's going on, we can't have a deal. Um, he said, well, how do you think it's going to go? I said, I think we set us back 10 months. Um, and quite rightly, nobody in their right mind was going to accept giving up every agreement they've ever made in the last 147 years and not being allowed to negotiate in the future. So that quite naturally was rejected. Then you get a dead period where nobody's talking to anybody, and then somebody uh, makes an overture to you, Mick, can we have a coffee or a talk? Um, can we get back into talks? I said, well, look, you smashed the framework the last time. To allow me to get back into talks, you've got to drop me a note saying that you're going to adhere to it in future. Otherwise, what's the purpose of this? I got that note. We went back into talks. We then went back into talks on different grounds. It, it, it clearly apparent to us that there wasn't one size fits all solution. But we have been talking about one or two broad brush issues, such as immersive training and SMFA process, one or two other things that, if the right price was put on them, would have got us out of the national dispute, right? And then put collective bargaining where it should have been back within the offices and the company councils where we traditionally do it. And yeah, so look, you can always ask or dis- want to discuss anything you want within that process. But what we'll do, we'll sit down with you over a course of a month, and all the issues you want to raise, we'll take all our red lines out so it's not destined to fail. Which we, and everybody really agreed to that, by the way. So I've gone into a new process with an agreement about how we're going to conduct it, what we're this going to do. Feb, this we is sort of February, the,
1: March 2020.
0: February, right. March time now. Um, and then everybody knows that uh, after the March period, is going to be an offer made on a certain day. So we trot over to Pannington to hear the offer. Um, so, and also the stuff that went down to the company councils will attract whatever value attracting those companies. So they're all going to be different. So if it was acceptable to be recommended by those negotiating groups, then they would go out to a ballot of those members of those companies. That's the traditional process. And that's what was agreed. So we turned up and uh, went in there, and uh, immediately their, their team said, you're not going to be happy. And I said, well, I have been happy for a long time, but let's see what we do. do. Um, we'll make you an offer for 4% for year one. I said, well, actually, as we're dealing with years three and four, we're not seeking one and two. Oh, yes, yeah, year three. So we'll make you 4% for year uh, three, 4% for... Uh, year four, but when all the stuff goes down to for negotiation, the company councils, the red lines stay in, and you know, it was immediately going to be unacceptable, immediately going to be rejected. So, we spent an hour and a half there afterwards looking at each other, trying to find out whether this was the DFT, the dead hand of government, or whoever. Um, left, asked for it in writing by six thirty the next morning because I was meeting my board at seven thirty so that we could report, so we could formally reject it. Um, And then it got even odder at 10 past seven the next morning, got a text, not even the courtesy of a phone call saying, I may miscommunicate the deal to you yesterday, Michael. Um, The deal wasn't uh, 4%, 4% and all the red lines go down for discussion uh, with your negotiating groups. It's 4%, 4%, inclusive of all the things that are in those red lines. So that was by text. The process we'd agreed, yes. So when I say I'm slightly frustrated with the process and not everybody plays this with a straight bat, I'm not sure. So you've you've
1: described a number of times a, a bad faith moment, I think, in sort of April time. Is is that is that what we're talking about now?
0: Well, that's it. I mean, there was two, 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 two to my minds, it was we'd agreed a process and how it would operate, and they went against it, did something different. And then in less than twelve hours they changed the goalpost yet again. And so since since
1: then, has has there been any further communication between anybody?
0: Not at all. I mean, um, you're other, as Nigel highlighted earlier, I've bored you to death a number of times I've been out there saying that we want to resolve this. We're open to future talks and whatever else. And all we get is uh, a mantra from the PR side saying, put it to your members. Now, if they know that we can't put it to our members because we have got our deals that we recommend uh, as part of the process, and they've already agreed that, they're just going through the motions. And one of the reasons you wouldn't put it to your members, by the way, would also be strategic or tactical. Um, if you've got a deal you can't accept it's got four percent on it and you put it to your members then they'll put 4.01 percent on it and it's still unacceptable but it's that death by attrition stuff where they'll hide behind it forever just just
1: on the on the point about the the things that you know the government keeps saying which is you know put it to your members make your drivers are going to end up on this deal earning sixty five thousand pounds a year for a four-day week and there's a lot of stuff on social media saying that's just not right um but it does sound i mean there are some drivers who are on you know fairly fairly chunky numbers maybe they've had specific local deals i i, I don't know but what what kind of money is a driver going to be on well, what are they on now and what would they be on if the if you were to accept that
0: deal? And I accept that's slightly hypothetical, but just give an idea of the numbers. Well, it'd be about 27 different deals. now. So you know and I know uh, from your background, Richard, that those intercity companies that had mileage, whatever, consolidated an awful lot of stuff and then were able to either have committee Sundays or Sundays yeah. in the working week. So. Um, and But also then, with the introduction of Pendolinos and the West Coast project, there was a massive amount of flexibility required. And as part of that, that those projects, wages were driven. So anything we did back then went into our basic wage and our deferred wage, and pensions. So we've got inner city companies that have always, even in BR times, outstripped the salaries of inter um, interurban and regional railways. Yep. Yep. And when you when you use averages, then all of those high-paying in-the-city companies, there are people in London on 10, 13 grand less, right, in certain areas. So I think the average pay for a train driver, I think the ONS says, is around just over £59,000, which isn't a bad salary. But again what i object to if i might is this idea of the politics of envy you know, no one ever gave us anything i've sat in some rooms with many of your contemporaries when i was an officer negotiating when a- any major project new trains were coming in for the flexibility required when the industry grew um, and, and passenger footfall massively increased how do we deal with our lack of resources we need drivers to do whatever and we put that into our salaries we paid for it but also, you know, we took us 110 years to get the eight-hour day. We gave it away overnight privatisation to go and work 10 and a half hours, 12 hours a day in some places to meet the needs of the industry, which is never mentioned. So, yes, we do ha- enjoy salaries, but and you know, I, I think there are an awful lot of people in our society where work doesn't pay, and you expect me to say that. But, you know, I look at nurses and firemen and policemen and teachers and those in the NHS, you know, uh, where uh-huh. there are people using food banks where they work. Now, the idea that... We shouldn't have a salary. I previously postulated that if we don't take a pay rise, we give it to them. And it all goes quiet because that's not the intention. The the, the idea is about, oh, we'll make train drivers look nasty. But during this period of time then where we haven't had a pay rise, which is now half a decade for some people, all our employers have been making hundreds of millions of pounds. All our employers are paying dividends to their shareholders. But the people who work for the company don't get to share by having their pay increased. And that seems to come from a diktat from the DFT and or the the government. Now, if you want to come set our wages, nationalise us, and we'll talk to you collectively. Uh, But you still have the same problem. We still believe that everybody who's in work deserves a pay rise. We believe other people should have what we've got. By us not having it, so how long would it be acceptable for us to go without a pay rise? A decade? Two decades? So we're back on the average of twelve thousand pound that we were on in BR times when we worked twenty eight days hours, twenty eight days on the trot with all that faux overtime sitting around uh, mess rooms for twelve hours a day because we were on milk tokens and had to go do DWP appeals. I don't
1: know. Yeah, no, I, I think what we we want to come and talk about establishment levels in it or vacancy gaps, but I think we will, Nigel, I you were you, I know you were we we've been talking earlier. You we're quite keen to talk about this product, you know, the productivity gains.
2: Well, yeah the, product, yeah, the productivity thing, Mick. We understand that the 4% plus 4% deal does come with productivity conditions. I mean, what are they, and why are they not reasonable things to ask for, in Aslef's opinion?
0: Well, I'm used to a world whereby if I ask you what the worth of something is, so I can translate it into the opportunity cost and what the value of it is for the people that have got to do it, people can tell me. Um what we 've seen is that we want everything, even in places where we 've got already got these things. Now, part of my problem selling any deal, regardless of whether I think it's acceptable or not, is if some people are already doing it and some people aren't doing it but they're getting the same pay rise, it causes immediate disconnect between those people and the people that actually vote for it. So they you know people talk about Sundays have been a big issue throughout all of this. If you look at all the talks involved, only two out of all the talks involved don't either have Sundays in the working week or commit Sundays. So how is this the biggest issue that's going on within this this, this um, dialogue? Um, Just two. Trapping people don't. into paying for their own training and trapping them into being tied to that company for ever and a day, which is actually restraint to trade in anti-Bosman, but we'll leave that to a separate debate. You know... Um, but some people may be not being allowed in the pension funds in future. All sorts of things. People creating a three or four tier system for train drivers. Look, I, I don't care what age you are, what gender you are, or what you do. If you have the same medical competencies and the same professional competencies, you should be on the same salary. And try, trying to create a four or five tier system about how drivers come, who come into the industry finally get to the salary, which ultimately be a lower salary than those that are currently in the industry are on, I can't sell.
2: No, I I understand that. Just sticking with T's and C's for the moment, um, you and other Asleff spokesmen and indeed many members have said many times, in fact, you just said it again a few minutes ago, you can't accept the current offer because it would entail, and the usual words I've used are a bonfire of terms and conditions, hard one over 50 years, but you've just said hard one over 147 years. Um, Can you just illuminate for us what's at stake there and what has been asked for?
0: well what's what's the stakes everything i mean they basically white rostering would be the ideal. come in on a day and we do anything we want with you, we extend your day, change your brakes, change your system look you know when you've got a system whereby in many companies now the window for a train driver is sixteen to twenty hours if they're spare right and they can work between eight and ten hours in many companies, but some companies can roster them more when you know not knowing when you're coming to work, not knowing when you're going home right when you already work shifts. Right in the 21st century, you talk about flexibility and attracting people into the industry, right? Not knowing what you're going to do and when you're going to do it, right? Which is some of the things that would arbitrarily happen through some of the things they'd like to change isn't on. Look, but- we we live in a dry time travel-driven industry. I mean, I much remember Philip Hammond talking about Spanish practices in the industry, and he spoke about um, you demand time to go from one end of a train to another, and I said, Minister not a problem. If you've got that Star Trek technology, we'll use it. Otherwise, in the diagram, it will show me stopping at Euston, shutting the desk down, right, coming out of the train, walking the length of the train, setting the desk up to be able to leave at that time that you appointed in the timetable. What's the Spanish practice? And there seems to be an awful lot of things here where people think, right, that there are things that we do, you know, What happens in every sector of our railway, as you both know, is driven by the pattern of the timetable of the sector that you're in, right? So you will get unnatural unnatural diagrams whereby you go to a point and then your return journey isn't for two hours. But you're not at home with your family. You know, it's nine o'clock at night and you're sitting there to work the last one back, right? You're not at home with your family watching telly with your feet up. You're still hoping that your last train's not going to run late and you're going to get home on time, aren't you? You (laughs) When the railway goes to park. You don't just get off the train in the middle of nowhere and you know, walk across a field get a taxi. Shag flag like a taxi down. Uh, most of that's the real problem about the work is the opportunity cost of it. Nobody can tell us where the benefit is and what it's worth. Yeah, you know, but the idea that you can just do what, rip everything up and we, we're going to come through a situation whereby on any given day you can do what we want. Yeah, you know, and there was the other thing, wasn't there? About um, was the grand chaps? If I'm talking too much, please. Stop. It's all right, mate. We're... Yeah, yeah. Where where he said, well, people should be forced to work their days off. So you've already got us working eight to ten, ten and a half hours a day. You've already got us working three shifts. You've Got us working sixty hours a week, right? But also, that was meant to drive. I mean, I think Richard remember the original DRI's. Nobody was meant to work any of their time off. We're going to work harder and faster and smarter and longer for the quality time off. Because the way the industry grew, the capacity increased, we that's never actually materialised. I know you want to talk about status later. So, you know, you've you lived on goodwill. But you not only got people committed to working Sundays and in working week or to commit Sundays above, then you those companies where we got committed to work their Sunday off, you then expect them, right, to show goodwill, although for pay, and come in on their rest time. Hmm.
2: So right. just just to understand clearly, you you really are saying that all terms and conditions, one hard one over fifty years or more, the entire lot would go.
0: Well, that's what it seems to be to us. I mean, everything there because you you have the ability to look at what something's worth is also based on looking at the consequence of it. If you change this, what well, you know it has an knock on effect to 20, 30 other things. And once you change the basic ability for anybody to demand either their train, their roster, their route, or the time that they're at work and not be compelled to do overtime. Look, the industry's always run on goodwill. If you're trapped out there, you're trapped out of there. But even on, on the times where you're not trapped out there and somebody normally asks you to do something, very few people refuse. Yeah, that's because right. Because on the days when, and I'm quite honest about this, on the days when you're spare and there's nothing for you to do, you might get away a little bit earlier. So it's always been that swings and roundabouts. called give and take, yes.
2: Mick, um, you mentioned establishment levels there, which I know my very good friend and co-presenter is quite interested uh, in.
1: Partly because of something that you referred to a a moment ago, Mick, when you're talking about Virgin and Pendolino as an introduction. And one of the things I do remember um, during that time was a lot of emphasis was put on uh, recruitment and training. So So for those listening who aren't exactly sure what we mean by establishment, what we mean is the number of drive as you need to run the timetable service really without relying on overtime and, and, and rest day working. It's it's basically the full complement, a zero vacancy gap. If you're at full establishment, you haven't got any vacancies. Now, that's very, very hard to achieve, obviously, but but that's where you aim for. Um, but we seem to have drifted away from that position whereby now an awful lot of talk seem Reliant again on rest day working and an an overtime overtime working, surely, really, that's not good for the long term health of the industry because you've got fewer drivers. You'd rather have more drivers and so forth. Have you got a a view on that? Would you Would you like to see get back to a point where we're pretty much at full establishment or close to it?
0: I want to get back to the point where there's no overtime at all. Technically, you know, the, the reality for us is our ambition is to have everything we do encompassed within our average. And I keep using this word average because it is an average, it's not a fixed four day week, mm. as you know. And also, for the benefit of the people that are listening, you don't get every Saturday off. Much of your time off is in the days when your family are at school or at work. So you get a wet Wednesday in October or you get a Thursday. <laughs> it is spread sure. across the seven day week railway. Sometimes that gets messed up. Yeah, but the establishment calculators were there. Even under BR times, it was 0.3. And it was meant to encompass all your civic duties from, you know, TA, jury, uh, union leave, medicals, rules, whatever else. And for a period of time um, post-privatisation, there was that massive campaign to recruit. Because recruitment and retention became a real problem because we couldn't run the railway on 13,000 drivers because you sectorised it. And now you had to trade with other companies. So if you didn't have your own resources, basically, you couldn't protect your own performance. So it was a gift to both the unions and to the employers to actually resource the railway, which it should be. Now, what we've seen um, in the last 10 years is that in certain companies, their biggest problem is they will have loads of drivers sitting around. The reason I have loads of drivers sitting around is they've decided that certain drivers are only on certain tracks and certain routes. So you could have two depots in Sheffield not very far apart, not sign all the routes around Sheffield. You could have four people sitting spare at one of the depots in Sheffield and down the road, right, five or six trains standing there because they don't sign the traction or the routes. So people go for false economy is part of the problem. It's about, A, do we have enough train drivers? I don't believe we have. You're quite right. And B, where we do have enough train drivers, why don't they have the full gamut of tools to resource all the things the company might require? I have to say,
1: sorry, sorry, Nigel, just on that point, I have to say I was stunned recently to discover, this is not making a pro-anybody point, to discover one large talk. Doesn't has drivers that do not sign what we as again for people who aren't aware of this sign means that you know the route, you know where the signals are, you know where the yeah. platforms are, you know where the stations are, you know where the speech. Route,
2: You're authorised yeah, to drive. Over. Does
1: not yeah. sign a principal diversionary route, so come disruption, they can't they can't go down that. Way. I mean that just seems as you say that does seem credible false economy.
0: Is and it- also to add to that, we 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 have an age problem that right. up in the industry. Uh, I believe the figure is well over 20% for the number of drivers in the passenger sector alone that can retire in the next five to seven years. So if they take the opportunity to go, and we're not only short of the people that were short already, but it's going to get worse. And we're not succession planning for that. In the freight sector, it's far worse and could be horrendous, but that's probably another is, debate.
1: but it's a very good point, yeah. Nigel.
2: Why why don't we have enough drivers, Mick? Um I think I recall as left saying it's because the, the operators won't recruit them. Um, I remember Chris Green actually telling me not long ago that in 2005, Richard, Virgin had a full establishment. They didn't need any overtime working to, uh, to, to, to work the West Coast. Um, the other side of that argument I've heard put is that the drivers quite like it when there's a low establishment because it means there's overtime. I mean, where's the truth lying in all that, Mick?
0: Well, we instruct our reps to get established as high as they can. You know, for us, our income comes from having train drivers. So more train drivers, more income we get, and also the less we rely on over Look, you've heard me say, both to yourself, Nigel, and others, how can you have a performance-driven industry, although performance doesn't seem to matter anymore in the current climate, um... That, that's reliant on overtime and goodwill. You know, surely the whole point of running a resilient railway is having the resources that are there, that are there to do it. And part of that will be on occasion maybe being overcompliment, having that level of spare that allows you to come for it. Now contingency. We don't, yeah. Because of the nature of the inability to cross cover anymore, which took a massive amount of resource out of the industry, right? you then got the fact that certain depots on the same route, and it will do per- portions of a route or some parts of a route. The very point that uh, rich has just made, appositely, you know, the, the issue here is, is also, but, you know, we've had companies that come to us and say we don't require a rest day working anymore. We say, fine, not a problem for us. We're really pleased that we've mutually achieved where it gets to where you want to be, and then come back to us in six weeks and say this isn't working, yet haven't come back to revisit the establishment calculator to adjust it to find out why it's not working. There's something wrong with the macros that tells them they've got, in my, in my view, and this is going to be overly simplistic, right, for train drivers, while we have the current technology we have, it's about bumps and seats. We can't drive two trains at one time, no. right, can't be in two places at one time. It's not about hours and minutes. It's about having a number of individuals you can to resource what you require to do. And also, yeah. we live in an industry whereby, outside of the fact we're going to manage the client at the moment, you know, there are always those incidents uh, one failed freight train can shut up a network or parts of a network for a given amount of time. And then how much of your resources you need to recover that are obviously far more outstripped than you do if you're running your normal service, your normal timetable. But then do you have those resources?
2: Could I just ask you something? W- one last thing, Richard, and then I'll hand it back to you. I, I just want um, mix opinion on something you just said about diversionary routes. Um, there's been an increasing number of companies have stopped. Um, using diversionary routes. LNER, to the credit, maintain drivers over the Hartford Loop and to Carlisle, and it's very unusual for LNER to put um, people on buses. So well done, David Horn and his team. Virgin, of course, if you're at Preston going north and there's a problem, the days have been diverted over the Settling Carlisle, a perfectly good main line, which was re-signalled for higher traffic densities for the coal that's now gone, lies idle while the poor beggars on the train can be taking four, five, six hours to get to Carlisle. And just and in deference
1: of my former employer, of course, it, we're, we're talking about Avanti. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: yes, yeah. Goodness. Okay, fine. But the, 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 I mean, what's your view on that, Mick? I, when I was editing Rail, I said time after time after time in comments that if there is a diversionary route available, it should be part of the contract that the company maintains route knowledge over those routes, because otherwise, all these lectures we get from all of them about putting the passenger first is just nearly said a rude word then, but I won't. What, uh, what's so, your view on all that?
0: Look, I want my people to have the full skill set available both for the safety of the travelling and for themselves, and that means using avoiding lines, if it means using diversionary routes, so it means whatever. You know, um, most of in the inner city companies used to also invest in Thunderbirds. I think Virgin were the first to do it. I'm not sure if Vanty do it anymore, where you'd have. Uh, engine station at various places along the line in case the train failed. So someone could go out and assist it and clear the line as much as possible. You know, um, I think there was a great emphasis when we had Schedule Eight. Because any delay, particularly a multi-user line, used to attract massive penalties. And so we had more accountants and lawyers employed in the industry than we did staffed to see who was to blame for the delays. But counting up, you'd expect is. me to take that point of view. I wouldn't necessarily Richard, agree sorry, with it either, but, but I would expect. It, yes, <laughs>
2: but, but yes. It- in deference to uh, Richard's former employer Virgin were very good about mm. diversions. It was Virgin that came up with the Thunderbirds yep. and naming him mm. after Virgil and Scott mm. and used to drag pendolinos over the settling Carlisle. And now yep. that doesn't they stick. The three most miserable words in the rail passenger lexicon, rail replacement bus.
1: Let's 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 yep. talk about something a bit more controversial and, and, and tricky. Please. Um <laughs> I was Nick a break. No, 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 there's no break on this podcast. We Um the the government has introduced the uh strikes open brackets minimum service levels close brackets false oh, oh, labor. Yeah. Well, uh let's just <laughs> we'll, we'll stick what well, it's on the statute book at the moment, right? Hang on. Um and the the claim that was made at the time that came out was to um that the public continue uh, are can continue to access service levels they rely on during strike action, right? They also said, and you can see it on the government website. It says most major European countries, such as France, uh, Italy, and Spain, have had some form of minimum service level regime for many years. And in fact, they even quote the uh, International Labour Organization, recognizing that such approaches can can be an appropriate way of balancing the ability of the right to strike with the rights of the wider public. You you told GB News, you, you actually said, "I naturally don't think." that forced labour in the 21st century is the right way forward. I think it's the next stain on our democracy. So that's quite quite strong. But surely, surely it's not unreasonable to try and establish a balance between the ability to have the right to strike, the ability to run a minimum service for the rights of the wider public.
0: Well, I, I fundamentally disagree. I mean, I think we fought two world wars for certain freedoms and then to obviate those freedoms. So what we have seen collectively... Over the last five years is a number of legislations from the protest bill to the Lobby and Transparency Act to whatever which are very much uh, taking away um, the rights and freedoms of people to either articulate a voice to demonstrate and demonstrations being what's changed most things in society down the years most civil rights issues have come about from the right to protest and demonstrate and also the right to strike. Um, it is interesting that a government who's not willing to come to the table to solve a situation, then will change the rules to try and force their, their, their view across the world. But let's have a look at it. We live in a safety critical industry, um, and we're part of the ITF. We're part of the ETF. We have those discussions uh, continentally and across Europe, and in those companies where they have the right to, countries, where they have the right to strike, not one country applies it because it can't be done safely. Um, what happens with the capacity you drive onto other lines? Um, what then happens with the... So if you go to France, I mean, France's got far lower uh, trade union density than we have in the UK, something like 5 or 6%. But everybody goes on strike. So when you give a transport strike, they all come out. How do you force them all in? It doesn't work. In Germany, they've had national strikes recently. We all know the German railway's in a bad position at the moment. They've got massive debt. That's why they're divesting of their assets, not just here, but across Europe and the rest of the world. Uh, both in the freight sector and the passenger sector, but again, they had a national strike, and there was no minimum service levels and of course it's this is rushed legislation and very poorly written but I'll come back to... no well to I just say say you know,
1: fully enough you've just you've just set that up beautifully actually because i mean I read the yeah. legislation and and i I have a lot of sympathy with that there's 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 it's quite difficult to it's quite difficult to um kind of work work certain of the detail out, and as we know it's all about detail. But but the the legislation is on the statute book. So why do, why do you think the, the 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 train operating companies recently chose not to use it? I mean, Elinor, I think initially said they would, and then they didn't. Um, but it's there. And then we've had um, ministers, in particular, and Number Ten, saying some you know I have to say quite unhelpful language around um, around all sorts of people about. not using it
0: why if it's there
1: have they not used it do you think
0: okay um i might drone on for a second or two so bear with me to get to my point the original legislation was all about priority routes and servicing those places like hospitals and schools and whatever else they took that out right i never quite understood why um so what you've got is legislation whereby i know pressure was put on the companies to use minimum service levels but legislation sits down to the employer and then once all the employers had put reports in about the difficulties of applying the legislation, then I know that the um, government then turned around and said, well, it's up to you anyway, after putting a week of pressure upon them. right? So I may do a few subject access requests and freedom of information to see who met who, because, as you know, Richard, it's illegal for the government to run the trains in this country since the 1993 Act. But when you, we looked at it practically, we asked the companies, so tell us how you can do it safely. Um, several meetings for the Majesty Inspector of Railways to tell us how this is going to be done safely. Oh, we can't tell you. We're going to monitor it. One company actually wrote back to me and says, well, MSL's are super safe safety. I said, no, they don't. Oh. Uh, they couldn't even tell us how they are going to apply the Data Protection Act. Part of it is that they are going to decide who to bring in. Then they're going to issue them work notices, and then we've got to tell them. But they're going to send me the data of people who aren't even members of ASLEF. They're, they're, but quite simply you read the legislation, it says you run 40% of the service services from their origin point to their finishing point. That doesn't mean then you can pick 40% of people to come in or 60% of people to come in to run 40% of trains on one route. You've got to run 40% of all services, as we read it, across all routes. So you shouldn't be then able to run more services than are in the legislation. So if you or an operator runs two trains an hour to Inverness, you can't run one train an hour, can you? Because that's 50%. Well, i <laughs> you know, the, I'll for agree the, the part, maths, but, yeah. you know. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> right, yeah. The, then the ability, then, if you've got to run all these trains in there that are in the various timetables from their origin point to finishing point, right, how many people are you going to put? One operator's army on one route in the Midlands alone. They would need 90% of people in. Is that because? Terms. That effectively takes away the right to strike because you don't have 90% of people available on a day And, again, basis. is That's that
1: why. because, back to the basic maths of rest day working and overtime yeah. that if you if there just isn't enough establishment so you need more of the actual drivers to run that service is that
0: no it's, it's oh, simpler okay. than that now you and i are grown up in a world with long-term and short-term planning yeah short-term planning if we know is going to be diversions right you can recast the time say we recast the roster recast the diagrams if i'm 7 10 in the morning on a strike day for six hours 20 just for argument's sake i'm still seven ten in the morning for six hours 20 how much of your revised timetable allowing for my legal breaks and other places can you put into that timetable? You have to use two or three times the number of people just to run. And also then, again, all the trains will be in the wrong place the next day. All the people will be in the wrong place for hitting their diagrams, their rest and everything for the next day. It is the most, I think, if the one industry you should possibly have not tried out on first, have been the rail industry, the, the logistics of how we operate. And how we have to, and in, and again, it comes back to that again in a fractalized industry, the inability to cross cover. So it's not just a question about um, the companies that are on strike that day; it's where the capacity goes onto the other operators that might be operating or not right. operating. And you know, and again, it is about the safety and the ability to do this um, that impacts upon us massively. So again, um, also the Transport Select Committee put out a number of tests, tests that we already knew the answer to. So we filled in the consultation in the Department of Business, as you expect us to, and the one from the Department of Transport. And in those, uh, whatever, then after all the consultation, the government's own impact assessment said it would lead to further strife. Because quite naturally, if you're going to force all these people in to have the same amount of impact and give them all the right to have their day off that they voted for, you have to have more days off. It's cause and effect, right? So it wasn't just Alineara who came to us. But there were several other companies that came to us. Uh, First, the standard letter keeps coming out from all the companies. Uh, We'd like to consult with you, but we may not use work notices. Well, we're not entering into any voluntary arrangements for forced labour, by the way. So if you are going to consult, we believe it will be the intention to issue work notices. And on that basis, we will, if you do this, put further strike dates on. And that's what happened. Eventually, the rest of the companies didn't want the additional strike dates. LNER were definitely going ahead. I imagine there was some pressure being one of the operators of last resort um, and also one of the worst actors we've had for, during this dispute. And then we then put an additional five days on, was proportionate in pursuing our pay dispute. That was always going to be the case. The government knew it. The industry knew it. We had been hiding it, right? Now, the test from – I'll give you three of the tests from Transport uh, Select Committee. Uh, one was it should not lead some more strife. Well, we knew that from the impact assessments. One, it shouldn't lead to novel ways of taking strike action. Well, we've now got 200 different ways of doing it. As you've seen, we don't all go out and strike on the same day anymore. We do different days in different regions or sectors and whatever else. So that's already failed. And also, it shouldn't lead to a less safe railway, and no-one can tell me how this is not fundamentally unsafe.
2: I think I've got one of my headaches coming on. I mean, it's it's very difficult. But the point you made earlier, Mick, about it – about very qu- rapidly passed legislation, it is always defective when they do that, isn't it? Whether it's dangerous dogs or whatever, knee-jerk legislation is is rarely anything other than flawed. Can we look forward a bit now? On November the 30th last year, you were quoted in The Independent saying, we're in it for as long as it takes, and this is not a dispute of our making. It wasn't us that decided not to give anybody a pay rise for half a decade. Uh, now, given the way the government has taken to trying to portray you as a load of grasping greedy neanderthal sort of um, actors in this, this is meant to, this is a reason meant to be a sensible question Mick. is there not a risk of actually have they laid a trap and plane into the government's hands they're hardly pro rail do we not risk passengers potential passengers losing much more confidence in rail for a much longer period and surely that's counterproductive for everyone especially your members
0: true um i think but i have to deal with and we have to deal with what's before us this moment in time we have mandates 94 to 99 percent in favor strike action now quite simply and i've said this publicly if people have come to us and made us a reasonable offer they put a dent in the cost of living for those two years not the four years we haven't had this would be over the idea that we're going to take a massive, uh, less than RPI pay rise and give up on our terms and conditions is, or any of them at this moment in time, they've acted so much in bad faith that I can't sell any changes. I don't believe to terms and conditions at this moment in time for a sub RPI pay rise. We need to get out of this dispute. We need to get back to doing normally. Um, on the wider issue, this government doesn't like rail. Um, is no, pro the agreed. driver. They've lowered taxes and short-haul aircraft. The CP7 tells you that we're going to manage the climb. We're going to have a railway that's going to be full of TSRs and ESRs. The lack of ambition on HS2... And major works in a little island 700 miles long with 62 and a half million people tells you they're not believing in the integrated transport system. When I went to COP26 and saw Boris and waited for a big announcement post the pandemic, when the rest of the world was changing their attitude to rail and electrification and all the things that we would like to see, it didn't happen. You know, even the investment in hydrogen batteries has gone out the window. You see, you know, we are, uh, until we get a change of government, in in a bad place. Um, and even then, I don't imagine the new Labour government is immediately going to put massive investments they've analysed what the future needs of infrastructure and transport are going to, going to be going forward. But, you know, we've given up on the green agenda. You know, I couldn't ever see how we could deliver Kyoto, Paris or the 1% without putting rail at the heart of it. Now, if we didn't have enough capacity for freight, before the pandemic, and all we're going to do is have tokenism of HS2 to Birmingham, which then has a knock on effect that the traditional trains going to Manchester, Liverpool, because they have no tilt anymore, Richard, are going to be slower than they've ever been in the last 10 or 15 years. We are going backwards. And if we want to compare ourselves, look, the rest of Europe has come, Germany, Spain, and others have reduced rail fares to get people back onto their railways, get pe- people back onto public transport. If we look at the same period of time, um, Spain has built 2,600 kilometres of high-speed track connecting 16 cities. We're going to celebrate 200 years of our railways, and we can't connect London, Birmingham, and Manchester. Yeah, I'm not greatly hopeful in the short term about people's view about railways. but, But what we do know, we're a field of dreams industry. We've known from experience, you build it, it we'll will
2: come, end.
0: yeah. Yeah, we saw it with Pendolinos, we saw it with the Red Revolution, we saw it all of those things And when we did it, you know, I, you know, I believe we could have increased capacity without privatisation. That's probably a debate for another podcast. let not do that, but no. But, but, but yeah. You know, the reality is, look at the Elizabeth line, yeah? Crossrail was late. It was 140,000 people oversubscribed on the first day and will pay for itself in five years. Crossrail was first moved in 1949. It what was. we actually need is a 10, 20, 30-year vision for all our infrastructure and an integrated green infrastructure that can't be touched by any government once you put the plans in place. That's well, that, why other countries are more successful than we are.
2: That that would be good. And certainly the build it that will come, whether it's Borders, Oakhampton or the Elizabeth Line, you open these things and they generally all do the beat their annual targets within about six months, don't they? So there's plenty of evidence there. Can we just have a quick, because we, we, I'm aware of your time, mate, just have a quick look at some of the politics. You're on the NEC, the Labour Party's National Executive Committee, whose purpose is, quote, to provide strategic direction for the party as a whole and to work in partnership with the party's representatives in Parliament, the devolved administrations, and the local government, breath, to secure the party's objective across the country. Now, Deputy Leader Angela Rayner, told the TUC last year that we know going on strike is always a last resort, but it's a fundamental freedom that must be respected. So let me tell you loud and clear, the next Labour government will ask Parliament to repeal these anti-trade union laws within our first hundred days. Does that imply that as less strategy might be to, how shall I put this, hang it out and hang on in the hope that a more supportive Labour government pops along soon and then see if a deal can be done?
0: If anyone thinks I've been waiting five years for a Labour government to come along just so I could get a pay rise, <laughs> um, not, not quite the case. Look, um, What the government also did um, in the original manifesto, it was Mr Shaps and minimum service levels of rail only. Um, that became across eight other sectors. So there's a massive campaign across all of those sectors where minimum service levels will impact the future, particularly by those trade unions that are part of the Labour Party. And I have to declare an interest, I'm also chair of Chulo, which is the trade the trade unions affiliated to Labour Party. So some days I speak for three and a half million people when they let me. Um, yeah, they all believe that this is wrong. That is fundamentally wrong. Um, so, yes, within 100 days, there will be an awful lot of legislation from finery hire to zero hours to MSLs that can, the the parties committed to get rid of uh, when the 100 days are coming into power. And I believe that paper has been drafted and written as we speak.
2: Okay, look, one last question and then we'll, uh, we'll let you go. Stepping away from the dispute, you've been involved in the railway for quite some time. So you've seen many highs and lows. When you look forward five or ten years <laughs> –
0: I can only answer this question.
2: Do you feel positive or despondent now? And why?
0: I'm a bit despondent about the future rail at this moment in time. We obviously have a Prime Minister that's not interested in rail. And we went through that with Margaret Thatcher as well. Thanks for traveling one train in 17 years. Uh having said that, you know, we have done an awful lot in the last 20-odd years about growing capacity. And we've but we need to do more. You know, our real problem has not has always been. That we are a make do and mend railway. We, we build 21st century uh, technology onto Victorian infrastructure purely because there are that many roads, bridges, houses, whatever. You can't dig this little country up and re- reboot it again. Um, but we, we do need those technological changes that allow us to increase that capacity. We need to get, though, more freight hubs. We need those more down and yeah. wakefields and hams halls that we do the longer journeys and the shorter journeys, the electric lorry drivers. Happen, and if you talk to our drivers, they'd rather do three or four shorter journeys a day, rather two hundred miles out and back. There is a real opportunity for us to deliver a, an agenda that suits our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. That also then allows us to dictate where we're going to build the houses for these people. You know, if you look at um, Steve Rotherham in Liverpool, he built two new stations, deprived areas. Businesses have gone there. People are going to live there. They now have the demand for schools and the other infrastructure. It
2: always that happens.
0: Phil's a dream quote. It, you know, I, I'm a railway advocate. I believe. Yeah. You know, when I did my economics way back in the day, you know, uh, communication, anything that got goods or services made to be for the local product, the gross national product was it. And you don't always have to ma- ma- measure that in terms of surplus. Because prior to the pandemic, for every one pound you put into transport, you got five pound back, and even now it's running what about one pound, three pound fifty. So, yeah, while it should be value for money? You don't always have to measure it in surplus costs.
2: I think it's worse than you'd said about the current prime minister. I don't think he's he's just disinterested in rail. I think he's positively hostile to it. And yes. there was there was more than a whiff of spite, as Richard and I have both said, about the phase two A. Um, decision on on HS2, so we re- and of course the rest of the cabinet will fall in behind it. They're not going to argue. So I think it's worse than that. And Mrs. Thatcher might not have been on a train in seventeen years, but she did the Channel Tunnel, didn't she?
0: She did, and also, yeah, she said rail privatisation privatisation too far before which comes back in. But also, look, that- <laughs> <laughs> God, that's talk about
1: being but- <laughs> ch- chopped off at the knees before you've even had a chance to open your mouth.
0: <laughs> Crikey! <laughs> but, but you know, look. There's no takeaway that we're a little island, and the only way that we can grow and deliver for every community is to have mass transit and integrated uh, transport. You know, the other year I was um, arguing against the deregulation of buses. It took 100 million bus journeys out of the system. But the last time I looked, train stations didn't move. But the data is if you start your journey in public transport, you finish it on public transport. So the idea of people from the edges of towns or whatever to get to that, say, station on the edge of town or centre of town is what you've got to rebuild that. And we've also what got to get away from, you know, the idea that some people just want to be in air cars because they're still in the bubble mindset from the pandemic. Yeah. but unless we give them the confidence... And you know, and we still have places in the country where we're running seventy percent timetables. I, I see those pictures of people standing on trains. I look at it and think, is that due to the footfall coming back, or is it due to people having to travel on fewer services? Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, you're right about the integration. Mick. Look at Oakhampton, where the buses that they've put in with opening the station have extended rails reach by a lot, Richard. Well,
1: you. I was, ju- I, I was just saying, what a positive. There, there was a there was a real positive message there. To end on you know we all i think we all agree we might not agree with you know some of the things we talked about today but we definitely agree we're all advocates for rail and, oh, yes. uh, and i'm also a, a passionate believer that if you build if you run a safe quite boring really predictable reliable railway with enough services uh and people can rely upon it they will travel so it's as simple as that and that's what we all want mick i'm Really appreciate we really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, thank you we so do. much. Um, thanks also to your wonderful comms director Keith Richmond, who takes our calls with um, with a smile and and uh, and, and, a, and a cheery hello. So really appreciate uh, the arrangements, and I really hope we'll be able to have you back in the not too distant future. I mean, it's been absolutely brilliant.
2: And of course, thanks to you, Mick, for being such a a wonderful interviewer who's maintained good humor throughout. Um, and we really look forward to seeing you back on Green Signals pretty soon. And good luck with the uh, the challenges you have ahead. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. No other battery looks like it or lasts like it, eh? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Excellent. That, that was magnificent. Whatever you might think of what Mick says, you can't fail but to be impressed with how he says it. That enthusiasm, determination, burning passion for the industry and his drivers – after 38 years on the railway, and I'd add the word relentless, I think. What say you?
1: Yeah, well, I, I, relentless was, was great. I mean, it was I, – I, look, I'm not going to disagree with that. It, it, it was it – And that's was, meant
2: complimentary and affectionate. Uh,
1: absolutely. No, that was – there was energy, there was passion, there was belief. There was a lot of political belief in oh. there, you know. So, um, you know, so Mick would be the first to admit. He comes from a point of view, and not everybody's going to agree with that
2: point of what, view. You mean Westminster Tox? Well, that like
1: was a bit, of I mean, that that's a bit cheeky, isn't it? I mean, he drops those sort of things in and that's fine. Look, I mean, he, his point is making they're really under government control, but then I suppose, you know, they not are. necessarily <laughs> wrong. So, um, but it was, it was, I, I've actually, whether you agree with some of that or none of it, I hope that was entertaining and informative. Oh, it was,
2: hmm. Enten- entertaining for me anyway. So what were your key takeaways? Yeah. Um, I suppose the slight
1: desperation of it, really, because uh, I think everybody has kind of got a stake in this mess, right? I don't think there's no heroes or villains. There's no, you can't say they're a good cop and they're a bad cop. It's not like that. It's no. there's lots of missteps have been taken by by all sides, but I do think that the Department for Transport and the government really do need to go and have a jolly good uh, long look in the mirror about this. Because for 20 years, when they weren't involved, things tended to work okay. Jog along. Yeah. Now, fair enough that with COVID and um, the fact that all talks went on to management contracts, that has changed the landscape. But it hasn't changed where the experience sits and where the competencies sit. So uh, my, I suppose I just got that slight desperation that if the – train operating companies and the trade unions were allowed to actually do a deal uh, and everybody was empowered to, it, it would get sorted. And I do think, I genuinely do think with this, that the department have been kind of sleepwalking into this really, and they're not experienced. They don't have no. the, the necessary competencies to do it. Um, and it is not helped by ridiculous language that's coming out over things like minimum service levels. Um, So really there needs to be a bit of a kind of a step back from all of that and say, right, okay, let's actually empower the people who know what they're doing to get, to get, the get job on. Done. Well, Mick
2: said he'd done 14 pay deals over the last sort of year but um you're right about that language um and look we know Micks a political beast and he, he, he frames his argument in a highly political manner yeah um, I might not always like that but I understand it and what I do not like in any way shape or form um is the whiff of spite and malice that's coming from ministers about aslef I understand they're difficult to deal with and all the rest of it, but there's been some fairly unpleasant things being said and characterised about the union, which I I don't think helps. And what that did do was empower people like Rhys Mogg to start talking about the railway sucking on the teat of public subsidy, which I thought was outrageously offensive.
1: Well, uh, there are some people, um, every opportunity they get to show you how ill-informed and ignorant they are on something, they grab it with both hands, don't they? And and that it was it was it was offensive, actually, and inaccurate and or and 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 right. Hopefully most people who just have ignored that, and hopefully people who weren't sure about what was going on with this will now, having listened to that, be better informed. But one thing's for certain, unless the the people with the professional experience and expertise need now to be allowed to do this, because it's completely unreasonable in my view. I mean, totally unreasonable. To blame the train operating companies, for instance, about not implementing minimum service levels, when it's quite clear that the legislation, the process has been put in place, doesn't plumbing work. Right? So you can't you can't say you do it, even though I know you can't do it. It's just ridiculous. I mean, give them a break. So yeah, let's let's allow the people who know what they're doing to do what needs to be done.
2: But what chances are of that happening? We can keep pushing for it, but you know, until the DFT and the Treasury, in your own words, step back and um, get over themselves, then um, you know, as in personal relationships, people have to say, "Look, let's stop doing this when there's a breach, yep. um, and let's create some space in which we can indeed do some good and step back a bit from the the horrible language and the the, the sort of precipitous way we've been going about it." Absolutely. And on that note, note, note. (laughs) I guess, um, but interestingly, maybe one last point, we should, um, you know, it is likely, if you believe the pundits, that we're going to have a new government coming along when the election comes sometime this year. Um, And if that is a Labour government, maybe we need to be looking at what Labour nationalisation, which... um, Louise Haig offers, but which Rachel Reeves' shadow channel seems less convinced about, what it might really mean. We've got plenty to talk about there, haven't we? We certainly have.
1: Well, the, the I saw a well-known right-wing broadsheet newspaper had a crack at the weekend. Uh, and we can talk about <laughs> we can talk about that as well, absolutely.
2: Well, let's leave it there for now. Thanks again to Mick for uh, his, his good humour and in engaging with us throughout. And I um, hope we'll have him back on soon. But meanwhile, from you and me... Goodbye.
1: Goodbye.